Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Before we start, I'd like to pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land, the Kadigal people of the Eora Nation, with the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight. But it's the Wongal people of the Eora Nation on which our campus is located out at Lincoln. So we pay our respects to the traditional owners of both those campuses, the elders past and present and future, and that's what our research is about, looking towards the future. So this is the first, I'm proud to say, of the Sydney Ideas Lecture Series in 2014, hosted by the Faculty of Health Sciences. And what we aim to do in this lecture series is to present research that's new or emerging, so it's cutting edge knowledge and presenting it in a way that makes sense and to a wider audience. Because this is unusual, often we just put it into an academic journal that really not many of you will be reading. And the research is research that affects everyday lives of people about how you actually live. It's presented in a way that you can actually use the information, walk out and know what it's about. So what better way to start the series than talking about obesity? Obesity is a problem that we know underpins almost every health disease that we're talking about, changing the whole health profile of our community, actually. We haven't, although we know what makes you fat, we actually haven't been able to tackle it in a way that's actually reduced obesity. So what Kieran's research is doing, and Joe is actually looking at this very um, topic. You may know that there's been a lot of debate, and if you read research, you'll see that you know, it keeps changing its mind, so it's pretty hard to know what to do on an evidence base. And so what we need are really rigorous researchers who are passionate about the topic but objective in their research. And Kieran is such a researcher. So he's talking today about sugar-sweetened schools and he's partnered with Joe Gardner. So Kieran is in our faculty, the Faculty of Health Sciences. He's a registered nutritionist and he's a senior lecturer in exercise and sports science at the University of Sydney. For the past 10 years, he's been responsible for the development and implementation of curriculum studies on metabolic biochemistry and exercise physiology. His research investigates the roles of diet and physical activity and their impact on me metabolism. So Kieran is also joined tonight by Ms. Jo Gardner, who's CEO of the Healthy Kids Association. So welcome, Kieran, and I hope we have the answer at the end. Sugar, yes or no? I can tell you now it's no. <laughs> <coughs> thank you very much, Cathy. And thank you very much, everybody, for uh, coming along tonight uh, for what I've come to realise over the past year is one of the most highly controversial topics that I could ever have stepped into. Um, and so before I get too much into the talk, I'd like to identify that there's going to be three key themes that keep popping up over the course of the next hour. And so I'd like to get them out in the fourth foreground now so we can just keep coming back to them as we come through the next hour. The first thing I'd like to point out that in my opinion with regard to healthy eating practice and the education of healthy eating the current government guidelines for schools is completely deficient and failing our children. And second thing I'd like to identify is that in my opinion when we think about the way in which the current government guidelines are poorly implemented, 
then there is a distinct inequity not just across our state but across the entire country with respect to the way in which we're developing our children for a healthy lifestyle. And the third thing I'd like to identify that will pop up is that the way in which the current government system and guidelines is in place encourages and almost supports manufacturing reformulation of foods and marketing to parents and children. And that's why I don't have a problem with saying that as far as I'm concerned, the current government guidelines not only do nothing to combat childhood obesity and developing a healthy lifestyle, but through their apathetic approach to compliance, could actually be doing more harm than good. So with that in mind, that's where I'd like to launch into the talk at the moment. So to give you a little bit of a background, oh sorry, to give you a bit of a run through, because I've been lecturing long enough to know I generally have an audience attention for about 10 minutes. So this way you can plan where you want to tune in and tune out. Okay? So in around about an hour and a bit's time at 7.30, we're going to let you attack either the wholesome food kitchen table, or for those of you who've already spotted it, you can see my canteen-approved healthy foods up the back table. And you can have a choice. And don't worry, nobody's monitoring exactly who goes to what table or exactly how much gets eaten. I'd like to just put, at this point, put in a thank you to Maria Humphreys and Michael Texalaki and the group from FHS who have, who have uh, organised tonight's event. We planned this last November, and at the very first meeting, I threw the first spanner into works and said, whenever you go to an obesity or diabetes conference these days, there are people waiting with a camera for morning tea and lunch because catering often brings out cakes, fruit juices, soft drinks, and all the like. And within five minutes, there's a tweeted picture and all uh, credibility goes out the window. So I said to them, we need to make sure we talk the talk as well as walk the walk. And so we have food supply from an external caterer called My Wholesome Kitchen, who haven't used any refined sugars as their sweetener. Yes, you'll see that there's some honey in there, so people might get upset that we've used that as a sweetener, but there's a selection of sweet and savoury foods there that have moved away from the refined carbohydrates. Before we get into the food, though, I'm going to come back in a little while, and I'm going to give you what I consider to be the major issues with the current canteen guidelines within our government schools. I'm going to use some select examples to really highlight the core issues. The core issues mostly being we base our food assessment on what we call a nutrient-based criteria, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. And that means that we can actually assume food by its ingredients as opposed to its proper place in diet and lifestyle. The other thing that I want to point out is that at the moment, we have a series of buck passing with respect to responsibility from government to schools. And what that results in is a complete inequity across the state because the only schools that will follow a healthy lifestyle and healthy education are those in which have an engaged local community, which means we are leaving other schools behind and we are leaving a proportion of our society behind. And that needs to be changed. And then I'll give you a few suggestions of my own suggestions for our new world order, which you may or may not jump on board. Before I get into that, though, I'm going to introduce and hand you over to Ms Jo Gardner, CEO of Healthy Kids Australia, who have as their role within this state to get involved with the government and the implementation of the Nutrition in Schools policy. And Jo can talk to you far better than I can about where we've come. Because as people keep pointing out to me, Kieran, you're a new kid on the block, you can't just step in there without pointing out where we've come from. And that's exactly why I want Joe here. 
the guidelines have been in place for over 10 years and before that planning and she can talk far more to the history of those guidelines and the difficulties in implementing them than I can. But right now I want to take another 10 minutes just to set some of the platform and the context for the talk. And I'm going to have a little bit of an assumption that everybody here is interested, has come because they're interested in nutrition in schools. But I clearly, I'm happy to admit, a year ago, I had no idea that there existed a National Healthy School Canteen Project Strategy. I had no idea there was a nutrition in schools policy and I had absolutely no idea that we had a raft of guidelines that oversees foods for sale in schools. It was only until I got a child in kindergarten and I met with a group of parents and realised how rubbish the food was that we realised that there must have been something that was going wrong. So a brief overview. This is the National Healthy Schools Canteen Guideline. This is a federally developed guideline. So if you go and find the federal government websites and you search in National Healthy School Canteens, this will come up. And I want you to note 2010 is the publication of this particular document. Now, in this document we start seeing the traffic light system that people talk about. So foods within a school canteen are rated as green, everyday foods, always on the canteen menu, orange or amber, occasional foods, or choose carefully or select carefully, different states have different names, or we have our red foods, not recommended on the canteen menu. Now how we decide what food fits into what criteria uses what we call a nutrient-based criteria system. That means we take foods and we have a look at what are the specific ingredients that are in them. We place thresholds on certain ingredients and if we go over that threshold, they go into an orange or a red food. If they're under the threshold, they stay in the green. Here's our first big problem. According to the National Healthy Schools Canteen, we only look at four ingredients to rate our foods. We look at energy content, which is actually an ingredient. So three ingredients and energy content. We have energy content, we have saturated fat content, we have sodium or salt content, and we have fibre content. So the idea is you have to stay under a threshold for energy, under a threshold for sat fat, under a threshold for sodium, but over a threshold for fibre. So let's just be a little bit cheeky for a moment. That according to the federal government and the National Healthy Schools Canteen, the only thing that's important about whether or not a food is healthy is these four items. Now, when we talk about the National Healthy School Canteen project, though, and you go to the website, even they're not committed. Because they say, you know what, you don't even have to follow our guidelines. Each state and territory, it's up to you. But this is what we're doing. Well, it appears every state and individual territory in the country has decided to ignore the National Healthy Schools Canteen strategy and come up with their own individual policy. And you can see that they've all got wildly exciting sounding names, fresh taste at school, the right bite strategy, the smart choices strategy. Um, Tasmania has kind of been a little bit bland with the school canteen handbook. Now what I've got in there is the dates at which that they were created. So note also that they've all predated the National Healthy School Canteen strategy, or that publication of at least. And maybe Joe can talk to that, but I couldn't find an earlier version of the NHSC. But a few things to note. Even though they're all different names, they're unified on at least two or three fronts. First, they all use the exact same nutrient-based criteria that the NHSC does. Second, they all ignore sugar. Now, if we just go back for a moment, 
you can't read this all that clearly, but what they talk about in the green foods here is these are generally low in fat, fat and or sugar. There's lip service there. People will say, oh no, we rate foods on sugar. They don't, because sugar's not one of the explicit criteria. So you can say, oh, you shouldn't eat foods without its sugars, but a manufacturer can come there and go, yeah, but at the end of the day, this is the table I need to follow, which means sugar is not included as a criteria. So they all use nutrient base, they all ignore sugar, and with the exception of, sorry, when we think about compliance, with New South Wales, Western Australia and Northern Territory, they're the only states and territories where the guidelines are mandatory. So all of the other states take on board a voluntary approach to healthy eating and guidelines within schools. New South Wales and Victoria are the only two that seem to have a specific ban on soft drinks. While all the others say that they should be red foods and we shouldn't eat them, New South Wales and Victoria seem to be the only ones that specifically publish a ban. ACT have just recently come out with an announcement that they will have one. But do you know what? Nobody checks compliance. So as well as, as, it's all well and good to have a guideline and structure that we need to follow, but nobody checks compliance. Now, what I want to do tonight is focus on the New, New South Wales one for three main reasons. One, it's the one that I've had direct experience with, personally. Second, when we look at some of the other states, such as South Australia and Queensland, they identify the New South Wales guidelines as the integral point where they develop theirs from. So if we can make changes here in New South Wales, that change can flow on to other states and across the country. And we can then act as a pillar. And third, we have Joe, who's got a wealth of experience in the New South Wales canteen guidelines and therefore can speak far more to it. I want to touch on one of the sugar things. There's one state that says they now include sugar as a criteria. And that's Western Australia. In 2014, four weeks ago, which meant I had to rewrite my slides, they updated their website. And they said that they now include sugar as a nutrient criteria. I've emailed them, I've spoken to them. They can't tell me what the criteria is because it's under copyright. So in Western Australia, there is a commercial company charged with registering products for sale in schools. And when I asked them, well, what's the criteria you use for sugar? Because you guys, I'll give you a gold star in my talk. They can't tell me. So I should make that point that while I say nobody looks at sugar, people from Western Australia might say, we do, but we just can't tell you about it. <laughs> so this is the New South Wales Nutrition in Schools policy. We're going to come back to this a few times. And I just want to identify that there is the policy that will pop up. We follow what's called the Fresh Taste at School Canteen Strategy, so you might hear Joe and I referring to just fresh taste to make it simple. And I put up there that we, fortunately in New South Wales, has a sugar-sweetened beverage ban in all schools. So what that means that we need to keep in mind is that if anybody here in this room knows of a school, a government school within this state that sells soft drinks, they're breaking the rules. And we'll get into some of the other foods that are against the guidelines shortly. Okay. Over the last year, since I got into these conversations, I've noticed one thing. Whenever you talk about sugar with people, they get very, very angry. Now, there is a paper out there that says if you go on a low-carbohydrate diet, you're in a bad mood. 
In my personal experience, the people that get angry are the ones who are eating sugar. Because they're the ones that get angry at me when I start talking to them. So I want to get a few things clarified from those discussions I've had over the last year. Let's just get a little bit of context. I'm not talking about us. Tonight, it's all about children. You like sugar. I love sugar. I drank two litres of cola a day. I used it to wash down a 180-gram pack of gummy lollies. I'd have a muffin at least once or twice during the day. I know what it means to love sugar. Right? But I'm not talking about us. We're adults. We can eat whatever we want. More importantly, I'm not going to tell you you can't eat what you want. My mum, after hearing my radio interview this morning, sent me a text message. Very proud of you, even though I love my sugar. Right? So I can't even get my mum on board. So I know I'm fighting an uphill battle. Right? So we're not talking about adults. We're talking about what we're feeding our children. There's a good reason for that. 60% of Australian adults are overweight and obese. We don't know what it means to eat healthily. Right? 60% of us are overweight or obese. The other reason why we're, talking about, we're not talking about adults is that while we might not know what's healthy, our schools do. And so as well as talking about, or mostly focusing on what it is about kids, tonight we're talking about schools. Because schools know what it means to eat healthy. They've got a curriculum on it. In New South Wales, it is personal development, health and physical education. PD, HPE. I always get that one. That one always gets me. Right? It's a whole curriculum. It runs from kindergarten to year 12. There is good knowledge in there about what it means to have a healthy lifestyle, and nutrition is part of it. But all of that goes out the window the second they go into the playground because there's no consistency of message because the canteen don't necessarily follow that same curriculum. So we're talking about schools because they should know how to teach our children. We're not talking about what you can or can't feed your children, but what our schools are and aren't feeding our children. We're talking about between the hours of 9am and 3pm, Monday to Friday, from kindergarten until year 12. You can feed your children whatever they want on, on weekends and before 9 and after 3. But the context for tonight's talk, whenever I talk about restricting food, I'm talking about schools, not us as individuals. And so the third context we need to keep in mind is it's all about education tonight. It means we know that when education suffers, health suffers. We know as adults now, we struggle to know what is healthy eating. And we struggle to change our ingrained behaviours. But we need to get in early with our children from the ages of five and start teaching them so that when they get to our age now, they're not 60% overweight or obese. They're not the ones who are probably 10 or 15 years away from their next heart attack or first heart attack or developing type 2 diabetes. Diseases that don't just develop overnight but develop a small increment every year for 40 years and then hit you. Which means we've got an opportunity now to start making changes which we won't see immediate rewards from but we will further down the track. The largest platform I'm building my talk on is sugar. That's without a doubt. That's why it's in the title to talk. 
It's a large part of my research for the last five years, but it's mostly about sugar. And I'm going to draw a line here. I'm talking added sugars, not specifically total sugars. And that seems to be a big confusing point for nutritionists, dietitians, and the general public. I'm focusing on the sugar that we extract from a sugarcane plant. We grow a plant, we cut it, we burn it, we boil it, we extract out a syrup, we dry it out, get a crystalline structure, hammer that all up, and then add it to our processed food. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about sugar. I am not talking about a fresh piece of fruit that has sugar in it and brings along with it all the vitamins and fibre that's with it. I cop a fair bit of flack from people that talking about sugar is a reductionist approach. Oh, we can't pick on single nutrients, is what they say. I agree with you completely. And if we were all to sign up tonight and say, right, we are throwing out the entire nation's nutrient-based criteria, I'm right there with you. If we are working towards a guideline that bases assessment on whole foods and what it means to be a food, but at the moment we have a system on nutrient-based criteria and it's broken, which means we need to fix it in the short term. But in the long term, we're going to go further on. The reason why I also focus on added sugar is there's no need to eat it. There is absolutely no nutrient benefit from added sugar. Manufacturers do not put it into food for health. They put it in there for two reasons. It's a flavour enhancer and it's a preservative. I was at a talk this time last year by the Grains and Legumes Council where a speaker from Cereal Partners Worldwide told us why they could not remove sugar from their 22% Nutrigrain bowl. Because bowl life would be shortened. That's right. They couldn't remove 16 grams of sugar per 100 grams because bowl life would be impacted and people then wouldn't buy it. Not because it was potentially detrimental to health. So when we talk about added sugar, it's a marker for processed foods. And that's why tonight's mostly going to be about processed, what I would say, junk food, in case that might be a bit inflammatory. More importantly though, we're going to talk about how the nutrient-based criteria allows manufacturers, indeed encourages them, to just simply re reformulate foods to meet a certain threshold that can then be sold and marketed to parents and children for sale in schools. So we're going to focus a little bit on that. But then again, it's mostly going to be about education and what we can do to improve the current situation, both as individuals and also what we can rely on our government to do. A point about sugar. It seems to make a lot of people angry and seems to be a very controversial topic. Indeed, within this very same institution, you will find many professors of nutrition and dietetics who will say that added sugars are not a problem. There's a lot of controversy around the role of dietary sugars in metabolic health and what we call non-communicable diseases, or NCDs. These are diseases that are non-transmissible or non-infectious. So I might be diabetic, but you won't become diabetic just by sitting next to me. We've got to have the same lifestyle approach to develop that disease. It shouldn't be controversial, but it is. And there is a number of reasons why it's controversial, and we might get into them as the talk progresses. 
But I quite happily sit here as an academic who's researched sugar and particularly added sugar for at least the last five years and for the six years before that researched fat intake to say I'm confident that there's enough literature out there to say dietary added sugars are highly or strongly associated with weight gain and dental caries. There's two that should be accepted as strong evidence for, and we'll get into that in a moment. I'm also willing to say, though, that I'm not convinced that they're the only two things we need to worry about. Diets high in added sugars associated with Alzheimer's, dementia, diabetes, fatty liver, and gout. These are other diseases which are on the rise that we need to keep our mind on. Now, I'm not just making this up. There's been at least five great years of research coming out of this university in one of the most wonderful collaborations I've ever had with Professor Bob Boat from the School of Psychology. There's great human data coming out on epidemiology work and intervention trials that all link diets high in added sugars with weight gain and other metabolic diseases. But I'm not going to try and convince you by giving you pages and pages of graphs and plots. I'm more than willing to accept that there could be people in this room who don't want to listen to me. So don't. Listen to two other people. The Australian Dietary Guidelines and the World Health Organisation. Because they're far more powerful than I am. They spent far more money in researching sugar. And they've come up with two really big changes in the last 12 months. Some people might not be aware that we have national dietary guidelines reviewed roughly every 10 years. They've been around for about 25, 30 years. They govern what professional bodies such as dietitians and nutritionists should be advising the people that we eat. Well, last year when they got reviewed, a big change happened. Previously to 2013, foods with added sugar were told to moderate our intake. Ah, look, don't really worry about it, but you should be concerned. But last year they changed that. They moved added sugar into guideline three. They've told us now that we should be limiting the foods that contain added sugar. That is the exact same barrel that saturated fat, sodium and alcohol are in. So according to our National Australian Dietary Guideline recommendations, reviewed over 55,000 articles to come up with these guidelines, sugar is just as bad as each of those three things. And we have specific limits and thresholds for all of those. And when we talk about schools, we can ignore alcohol. We don't sell alcohol in schools. God, I hope we don't. Right? But we have named limits for saturated fat and sodium. So if for no other reason, right there is how we know our current state guidelines for canteens are outdated. They are in complete contradiction to our national dietary guidelines. If for no other reason, we should update them now to include a threshold for added sugar. Now, the ADG, the Australian Dietary Guidelines, don't give us a specific limit, but the World Health Organisation did. Around about a month ago, after years of reviewing the research, they came out and said, right, look, as far as we're concerned, nobody should have more than 10% of their daily energy intake coming from free sugars, which is akin to the added sugars argument. So syrups, uh, yeah, so syrups and sweeteners that you're adding to your foods. 10%. They said, as a recommendation though, you're going to see a lot more benefits for your health if you cut it down to 
5%. People have calculated that down to be roughly 6 teaspoons of sugar, 30 grams, for an adult. For a child, it's around about 3 teaspoons. I'm going to make you keep that number in your head because we're going to pop up again with that in around about half an hour's time. 3 teaspoons of sugar. Every gram after that then increases your child's risk at a number of things, including the biggest evidence for weight gain and dental caries. Now, weight gain. Why would they be interested about weight gain? They're focusing on weight gain because it's an issue that's riding across the globe. Right now in Australia, we have one in four to one in five children or young people overweight or obese. Now, a little bit sketchy there, because it all depends upon what questionnaire, what survey you go to. Do we break people up in ages 6 to 16, or do we break them up in 12 to 24 as a young person? But as a rough idea, anywhere between 22 to 25% of people between the age of 6 and 24 are overweight or obese. Now, some people will stand up and might be sitting here going, oh, I've got him. Obesity isn't on the rise. Exactly right. For the last 17 years, there is evidence to show obesity has not been on the rise. We hit 25% back in 1997 and we sat there. And so people say, we're winning the war. Parents winning the war on childhood obesity was one headline that came out last year. We're not winning the war. It's a plateau when you look at averages. There is a distinct inequity across the entire country. Children from high socioeconomic status groups have plateaued and may have dropped a little bit. But children from low socioeconomic status groups continue to rise over that same period. We have a distinct inequity between the education level and the incidence of obesity in children and adults. And so we're going to come to education again. The other thing I'd like to point out is it's based on BMI. And BMI is rubbish. We base a lot on BMI, a body mass versus your height calculation. Tells you nothing about composition. I'll tell you what's a more important and more direct measure to be of concern is waist circumference. Waist circumference, measure the top of your hip, feel for the bottom rib, measure the length, put your tape around the midway point. Waist circumference is a far stronger predictor of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver. Three big things that will kill you far be well before your weight does. Waist circumference, using the same data sets that show us BMI has plateaued, has continued to rise for the last 20 years. Back in the 90s, for children, it was around about 5% over a, a critical threshold. It's now at 18% and continues to rise. And I'll tell you why that's fascinating to me as a sugar researcher. Because if you look at the Scandinavians who are forcing men to drink Coca-Cola a day every day for six months, it's visceral fat that increases. It's the fat that's on their waist. If you get a small animal, rat, mouse, or non-human primate, and you give them a diet high in added sugar, their mass doesn't necessarily change, but they get fat. And the fat is all in their abdomen. And so when we think about where sugar might be playing a role in the increasing incidence of metabolic disease, we need to think far more grand than just body weight. It's about body composition and what we're doing to the insides as opposed to just our change. But I'll tell you what, I'm more than happy to accept that weight's a controversial topic and people will say, Do you know, it all depends upon what group, what data set you use, 
how you, the analysis at your work, because I get those emails. I get those emails from professors within this institution saying, Kieran, you know, you really got to pull back on the sugar stuff. You know, don't you know sugar is good here and sugar is good there? So I was like, all right, let's scrap the debate about the weight gain. If there's one non-communicable disease that you will, I imagine you would never find anyone at this day and age to say, nah, sugar's probably not implicated, it's the Al Capone defence. We'll let you get away with sugar for body weight, fatty livers, diabetes, but our tax evasion with respect to sugar is dental caries. Right. This photo was courtesy of a dental surgeon, Dr Rob Beaglehole from Nelson, New Zealand. I met him a few weeks ago when we were at an anti-sugar conference. Right. So I declare I've been to anti-sugar conferences. This is a three-year-old boy. He had 10 teeth extracted. Three years old, a diet, staple diet of juice and soft drinks. The way Rob tells it is in 2009, 7,000 children in New Zealand alone underwent general anaesthetic and general admission for surgeries to remove teeth. We have a similar issue in Australia. If you have a look at the National Australian Dietary Guidelines, they tell us that in 2007 to 2008, we spent $6 billion on dental services. Now, sure, I'm being cheeky there. That includes adults and children, but that's because that's what the guidelines have given us. And sure, not all of that was on children, but that's about 6% of our total health budget spent on dental services. The World Health Organization based their report strongly on the evidence for sugar and diets high in added sugars and their implication with the development of dental caries. This child's a five-year-old child. He had five teeth extracted. That's them on the right-hand side of the screen. Every Friday, Rob has his dental surgery day. And every Friday, it's children lined up undergoing general anaesthetic to have these teeth removed. An interesting story about this boy. He was in so much pain, he hadn't eaten or slept or gone to school for the two weeks leading up to the surgery. So let's just have a think about that for a moment. If we know that there's a strong implication with a particular nutrient in food and that type of disturbance to our children, and that child then is not focusing in school, he's not even going to school, that child's not focused about nutrition, he can't even eat because his teeth are rotting away. That there, regardless of your stance on whether or not sugar is implicated in weight gain, should be reason enough to jump on board and say, well, we have a nutrient-based criteria that ignores a nutrient that we know or strongly suspect creates this type of issue. And some people might be sitting there going, ah, but that's never going to happen to my child. I won't let it get to that point. Great. Exactly right. And you're probably one of the highly educated, high socioeconomic group whose child is already in plateauing or reducing obesity incidence, and you will continue to look after that person. But we're not talking about looking out for you and me and our children. We're talking about making sure that the guidelines are equitable across the state and across the country so that we're picking up everybody and looking after all children that are coming through our schools. So look, I'm going to hand over now to Joe, 
um, who can tell you about Healthy Kids Association and the work that she's been doing. And I'm going to come back in around about 20 minutes. Hi, everybody. My name's Jo Gardner and um, I'm from Healthy Kids Association. Um, there's a bit of information about who Healthy Kids Association is down the back, but for those of you who you don't know, we um, are an organisation, we're a health promoting charity. We were established in 1991. We were the New South Wales School Canteen Association. Um, and we were, back then, and as we still do now, we're established because there was a realisation that food in school canteens had a potential um, to, to affect the health of, of children. Um, over time, our name has changed um, um, because our influence is broader than the canteen um, and we provide uh, support and assistance to not only schools but also to health promotion offices. Um, we now provide information and services to, to parents and to others. And we also try and work with the food industry to improve the nutritional profile of foods that are consumed by children. We're funded by government as well as um, through members. Our members are schools, parent bodies, teachers or, or, or principals, um, as well as individuals uh, and uh, other organisations who may um, deliver food services um, to, to students in schools. I'm going to talk a little bit I've just told you about who we are and the role we play. Um, a bit about fresh taste at school um, policy. And then Kieran's asked me really to, to create the context that are school canteens because they are complex and dynamic businesses and, and what happens in them is a function of, of that. You know all of this, Kieran's spoken a little bit about it. Children are influenced by availability so the issues about what is available to them during school, school hours um, um, is, is important. What happens at school and in the early years does influence their health behaviours and if we are able to create a foundation where kids understand and enjoy quality, nutritious foods, that will put them in a good place um, for as they grow. They start developing their, their healthy eating habits young in life, so indeed we want to be able to give them opportunities to understand food and to become food, what we call becoming food literate. Um, and definitely there is a role for schools and most particularly the school canteen um, um, within that. Poor food has a great impact on children's health. Good nutritious food does as well. And one of the other things that we see a lot of and, and are talk to with schools about is that um, having a good diet, eating before school starts, um, hence breakfast programs, and also good quality food during the day has an impact on a student's ability to perform at their best. So fresh taste at, at, at school. It's a spectrum. It's a classification system that does use three colours. Um, and indeed those colours are green, amber and red. Where the nutrient criteria comes, with, comes into play is only at that line between red and amber. There is no nutrient criteria between green and amber. Foods fit into the, the category of green foods because they're nutritious foods, they're whole foods, they're our fresh fruit and vegetables. 
Amber foods are those foods that are higher in fat, higher in salt, of less nutritional value, and indeed um, also tend to be en more energy dense. For schools, this is how they work it out. It's not that easy. In having a classification system that is about trying to organise food in a way that the green foods um, fill the menu, they are the whole fresh foods. Uh, um, the amber foods aren't to predominate. They are those foods which tend to be um, the heat and serve type foods, uh, the pies, the sausage rolls, the chicken nuggets, all of those things that I'm sure you know about. But they also are considered to be the pastas, the fried rice, the casserole types, the soups. They also are classed as amber foods. And of course, many of the snack um, foods uh, and many of the drinks. We, in actual fact, don't have any what we call green drinks. Um, historically, uh, fruit juice has been classed um, um, as being green. We've made recommendations to the government that that should not be the case. And in all of the other state strategies, that isn't the case. That was the nutrient criteria. This, the nutrient criteria is for uh, seven classes of food, savoury pastries, crumbed and coated, sugar-sweetened drinks, snack foods and bars, savoury snacks, ice creams and milk-based ice confection, cakes, muffins and sweet pastries. So that's where you would expect to see sugar. Um, sugar is controlled for by energy. And then, of course, fat, sodium and fibre. There is, is foods that have got a higher fibre content um, um, will come out of being red and go into amber. And that's all I'm going to say about them. Um, we do have a ban drinks in, in New South Wales and in most of the other states, actually, um, in that the old... Uh, a number of states have now adopted the National Healthy School Canteen criteria. Um, that's Tasmania, Western Australia, the ACT, um, the Northern Territory. Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria all follow our own strategies and have no, no decisions been made to adopt the national criteria. But what I'm here to talk to you about is, is the notion um, of what is a school canteen and some of the issues that, that are confronted. Have we got any canteen managers in the room? Hi. Have we got any parents who have volunteered in canteens? Hi, well done. Um, and the rest of the audience, parents who buy from the school canteen for their kids? parents who refuse to buy from the school canteen for their kids. <laughs> okay. Every canteen's different. There's not a standard model. You may have last year seen, and the year before, as part of the, the building revolution, that lots of schools got to get their canteens refurbished. The model that was used to refurbish canteens didn't have a stove, didn't have an oven, didn't have a domestic sink, a, a commercial sink, they were heat and serve. And yet we have a policy in New South Wales that talks about filling the mem menu with, with green foods, which are freshly prepared foods, and trying to move towards having some cooking within the canteen. 
So straight up, there are major issues with, with the constraints of, of, of the facilities that are there. Many canteens are extremely small. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, we've got some amazing canteens. They're, they're, they um, are quite smick and they're stainless steel and they've got everything that opens and shuts. The other challenge is increasing regulations. With all of that, school canteens, they are actually food businesses. They're notifiable. They've got lots of regulations with regards to food safety, as you would want and expect. But equally, they've got regulations that they're responsible for around work, work, work health and safety, both for employed and volunteer staff, workers' compensation, um, uh, and uh, um, all of the industrial laws if they employ staff, um, the, the superannuation, and many of them are run by voluntary organisations who are the PNC who need to come across and be across all of this. Um, that coupled with a cost and pricing structure that is too low. We, all of us, have no problems going to a cafe and spending significant amounts of money for our salad or our sandwich or our wrap. Um, or our hot food item. But if we were to put the true cost to make those sorts of things in a school canteen as a pricing on their, on their, their menus, the uproar that comes from families um, um, is quite significant. I spend a lot of my time trying to assist canteens to become profitable. Where once canteens were a profit centre, that, that is decreasing greatly, particularly in the primary school environment with the changing structure of family, the diminution of, of, in numbers of volunteers, so who does the work, that sees a default situation that to find product and to deliver food that can be got to the students within the timeframes and the constraints of those who are there to serve it up. There is no other business that provides a lunch service to up to 1,200 students within a 40-minute window, particularly when it's done with usually one or two paid staff and the rest being volunteers. If that is an 11.15 or an 11.30 lunch, it's an, a mammoth undertaking where storage is minimal, so pre-PEP time is minimal, um, they usually beg, borrow and steal um, um, to get fridges and freezers, that it becomes a really complex issue about the nature of the food that they can serve um, to their students. The other big issue and a big challenge is that the school canteen is often very peripheral to the thinking of many in the school and there's not an integration. It's in, it's in that context that we have to think about how we provide advice um, and set policy, food policy, that allows for the delivery of a healthy and nutritious food service out of our school canteens. Many schools have the ambition to do the right thing, but because that it is sitting over there, it is of low priority. Canteen workers, don't earn a lot of money. They earn $23 an hour as a casual. If they're a permanent employee, if they're permanent, it, it's less, take 25% off. And yet we expect so much of them. This is the context and the challenge that, that we try and work with every day to try and help them produce menus.
The other is the expectation that the canteen is a bit like a cafe and trying to get them to realise they're a food business that should construct a menu very carefully that will allow the foods that kids will eat and will buy that is varied, nutritious and provides for them is a difficult thing, particularly when it's coupled with arguments within their school communities that this is a treat and if I want to buy my child to buy a certain type of food, um, that, that should be allowed. Equally as when other parents say they don't like what is on the school menu, if you don't like it, you know, don't, don't use it coming back. Um, creates another layer of complexity and conflict within school communities about the nature and range of foods that should be sold there. We have had the policy um, in place uh, for since 2005. Schools have moved a long way um, to improving their foods. They still have a long way to go. Primary schools fare better than high schools and often the, the issue doesn't get addressed until a range of parents get involved and want to make a change in their school. And that's where we see conflict happening. There has been no compliance in New South Wales. There is a self-report requirement um, for principals that's kept in the bottom drawer. But we do know that schools have improved their canteen. We know that in the main, schools want to do the right thing. We had 400-odd canteen managers from across New South Wales in Sydney last week, and that is what they want. How do we produce green foods? Where are the green items? What are the green items that we can, can get on our menus that we can buy first, purchase within regional areas at the right price, be able to store them, be able to put them together quickly, serve them, and that our kids will eat them, because that is the big issue at the other end. We have um, spoken often with the Department of Education, who is responsible for, for the policy in partnership with the Department of Health. It is seen by them, I think, my view, as something that's been put on them. A lot of work was done. Um, to change the strategy into a policy document that schools would uh, hopefully follow. Um, and the top of that is, is the wording of it, that all, all schools should um, promote and model healthy eating uh, and good nutrition. Um, and schools are required, it is mandatory, to follow the Fresh Taste at School um, strategy with its, its limitations for what they are. But if followed where the green, nutritious foods fill the menu um, and are there and provided variety, where the amber foods don't predominate um, and where there are no red foods, you can construct a very healthy um, menu that, that is nutritious and interesting and kids will eat from it. So what's needed? What's the way? What would healthy kids say is the way forward? And we've not been able to do it, albeit that we've tried and tried. Until such time as we get some leadership at a ministerial and senior officer, and I mean director general level within the Department of Education, we can't move forward. There is no compliance. We are low on, on the list, albeit 
Um, I can perfectly understand that when they, we come under student welfare and the issues that confront schools um, in areas of bullying, um, cyberbullying, sex and drugs, all of those other things, um, healthy food uh, seems to, and the canteen seems to, to fall away. Um, there does need to be a, a consequence for non-compliance, and I know that Kieran's going to talk to you about that, but what should that consequence be? It would be wonderful if we could find the motivators rather than um, the punitive side of the equation. But the other very, very important thing in this is that I'm not a scientist, I'm not a nutritionist, but I do understand a bit about it. Kieran's last words were that there is such conflict amongst the dietitians and the nutritionists and the food technologists and the scientists and the researchers um, that what chance, what chance have we got of understanding what is healthy food, particularly if we talk about food as the sum of its part, as, uh, in, in its individual composite parts rather than the sum of all of that. What we would like to see, and, and again, something that we talk often about, is that there is education, that there's education in every class, every year, and it's about food. It's not about the composite parts. It's not about breaking it down um, into different nutrients. It's understanding what food we should be eating, how often we should eat that, in what portions we should be eating it. Um, um, with that, armed with that advice, children may have a chance to, to make informed decisions about what they're eating and the consequence of what they eat. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. It's a good place to pick up from. And what I want to do for this second bit is I'm going to give you a little bit of an understanding from where I've come from, um, what my personal experiences with the school canteen guidelines have been, and hopefully from that you'll understand why I have such cynicism with respect to the current guidelines. And I'll give you some of what I think should be ways in which we move forward. A great place to pick up there is that I agree with Joe. I think one of the principal problems that we have with our current canteen guidelines is that we use a nutrient-based criteria. The reason why a nutrient-based criteria is so wrong for assessing foods is it does look at only certain parts. And so therefore it's really open to being inadequate if we don't know what all the individual parts are that we're supposed to be looking at. The other thing that's wrong with the nutrient-based criteria, as I've already mentioned, is that it lends itself to reformulation. It means we forget about what a food is and it becomes a product. The second big issue with the current, current canteen guidelines is that the implementation of them, even in the mandatory states, sits in the office of the principal. So the government have come up with a policy, they've come up with a strategy, and they've gone, it's your job to deal with this now. Which means we have local issues driving change, and that's inequitable. The third big issue, I think, with the current canteen guidelines is it only covers the foods in canteens. And it ignores a whole school approach. 
So what I'm going to hopefully do now in the next 25 minutes or so, so I'm going to present each of those three in the order in which I think is the easiest to deal with, building up to the hardest. So this is where I popped up onto the scene. And last year, my boy started school, and that was my first introduction to a canteen tuck shop since I was at school. And the last time I was at school, I was eating chocolate donuts with moves, iced coffee moves in the morning, a Coke with a sausage roll in a bread roll with tomato sauce. And terms two and three were hot chip Fridays. And if you don't believe me, the deputy principal of that school when I was there is here tonight. And he can confirm that. And then we saw what was happening in kindergartens now. And I need to say a thank you and a bugger me to four particular individuals who I'll name in alphabetical order but without surnames, Julia, Justine, Mick and Natalie. Four really caring parents who drew my attention not just to the canteen but to the guidelines. And around about a year ago, I was sitting in a pub around about 600 metres from this room with three of those people, and we were talking about the food that was currently available for sale in that canteen. Now, there's a couple of people in this room who will gasp with exasperation because I'm going to bring out an old friend for one last time, hopefully. I'd like to introduce you to this chocolate chip cookie. I bought this 10 months ago and it still looks good enough to eat. And my six-year-old knows that this has been in the cupboard for the last 10 months. 10 months ago, I didn't know I was giving this talk, and I didn't know that this was going to be important, but I, geez, I thought, I've got to bring this out tonight. This cookie centered around, sat at the centre of some of the conversation in the pub that night. Look how big this is. Right? This is the size of a newborn's head. Right? <laughs> and this was available every day, on the counter, for $2.50. Now, let's assess this by the nutrient-based criteria. This is a sweet biscuit. I'm assuming it's a sweet biscuit. I haven't tasted it, but I'm making that assumption on the fact that sugar is listed as four times as an ingredient within this one biscuit, along with a little bit of beef fat, and a number of other preservatives, acidity regulators, and a bit of wheat flour and some chocolate. Now, being a sweet biscuit, that means we look at saturated fat, energy content, and fibre. Well, we don't have to look at fibre because the manufacturers haven't told us how much fibre is in here. But I reckon it's not that digestible, so I say the whole thing's fibre. But let's have a look at the energy. This one cookie in one serve has 2,200 kilojoules. For this to be rated as an orange food, it shouldn't have more than 600 kilojoules. Three times the energy content as what's allowable. This one cookie is a third of the total daily energy intake for a four to six year old. And you can buy it for $2.50 every day on the canteen counter. In this school you can. Well, you can't now, because I bought the last one. We'll get into this. Saturated fat content. For this category, shouldn't be more than three grams. It has 13.6 grams. Four times the amount of it. Now, we brought this to a PNC meeting. 
And it was a bizarre meeting at the most. It started off because the president of the PNC forgot the key for the room that we usually meet in. So we sat in the playground. And on Monday nights, a local choir group hires out the school hall and they're singing requiems. And halfway through the meeting, the lights went out. So we're actually sitting in the dark using our phones for lighting while the choir sang requiems and I tried to present why this food should not be for sale in our school canteens. And if you think I'm being melodramatic, two of those four people are here tonight and I'll gladly introduce you to them to say that I speak no lie at the moment. Now, what do you think was the response when I brought this cookie up? Complete and utter disdain. From the PNC, from other members, other parents of the group, but most of all from the principal. Over the next five weeks, the principal ran a campaign in his principal's report in the school newsletter and on each occasion found some reason to pick on the pesky kindy parents who have a problem with the canteen. He actually said every year the canteen's an issue for kindy parents. To me that means, well, maybe there's something wrong with the canteen, but apparently that means there's something wrong with kindy parents right? and that we haven't yet learnt the ways of the school. On another time, he said, well, do you know what? It's not my responsibility to police the foods for sale in the canteen. So I showed him the nutrition in schools policy. I said, excuse me, principal, it says here, you're responsible. And then another newsletter came out. Oh, well, do you know what? If you don't want to use the canteen, you don't have to. Right, so if I don't want to use a food service to provide healthy food for my children, I'm not allowed. Essentially, we've got a canteen that sells crap. We're going to keep selling the crap, and if you don't like it, you can take your carrot sticks and shove them wherever you want. Right? That's effectively what they're saying to us. Now, it took a lot and a lot of effort last year to deal with this principle. And there are still issues within that, but at least we've got a different canteen now. And things are changing. But there's something else you notice there. There are still parents that aren't happy with it they'll still find something to complain about. There are lots of different issues within a local community. People have many different health priorities. I get emails from vegans telling me, you know, sugar doesn't cause people to get fat. It's animal fat that makes people fat. And they keep coming through to me. So I'm happy to accept that lots of people have different opinions. And we need to take that into consideration. But for those who have a pesky principal who won't listen. Here's the banned list. This is the mandatory policy. Soft drinks, they're out. Confectionery, they're out. In another post that came out, was, oh, some people are upset about confectionery in the canteen. There's nothing wrong with confectionery. They are canteen approved. So we send them the guidelines to show them that they're actually a red food that should not be sold on any more than two occasions per term. So if you're a parent or a student in a school or you know somebody who has a child in a school and they serve out confectionery more than twice per term, they're breaking the rules. We have a soft drink ban. Here's the nutrient criteria that Joe's gone through. But here's the important bit. Section 4.1 of the policy. Principals are responsible for the government policy. They're supposed to have a self-assessment every two years. That should be sitting right now in every school principal's office as a bulky page document 
that's also about what the foods are for sale, how they're going to green them up and what they're going to do to change it. The immediate responsibility for the delivery of healthy food to our children sits with a principal who has far more things to worry about. As Joe pointed out, canteen food's in welfare. It comes way down low on the priority list. And I don't think it should be with the principals. I perfectly agree that they have too much to deal with. It's a government policy. It's a mandated policy. If we want it to be equitable across the state and the country, government has to run it. Because otherwise what we have at the moment are local people driving local change. And that's inequitable. Completely inequitable. The only people that will have healthy canteens will be those with an engaged community and a principal who's on board. That can't be. That's why we have a difference and inequitable approach across the whole state. So let's tick off what I think is the easiest thing we can do to make a change now. We can get tomorrow a year 10 work experience, working for New South Wales Health or Education and Community Services, to email every principal and say, by the close of business, can you please send me your most recent self-assessment tool? There should be one that's at least one day old, or at most two years old. The reason why we do that is because we have no idea how bad the situation is across the state. The most credible data we have regarding compliance with national and state canteen guidelines is from an organisation called the Parents' Jury, who ran a survey who downloaded menus available on the internet to try and assess foods. That's it. A group of parents, a great organisation who's trying to make a change, is the only data we have on how closely our state schools, our government schools, meet a mandatory government policy. That has to change straight away. We need some accountability. The immediate term would be to bring that in. We then find out what is the compliance rate across the state and where are the trouble areas that we need to target the most. I'm not saying to penalise. When that Telegraph paper came out, it was very much, oh, so what do you think we should do to people who aren't compliant? I said, no, 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 no. We need incentives. We need to find why is it that local communities aren't engaging with the policy. It's not about, about penalising people for not following a, a policy. It's about finding the facilitators to make sure we've got people on board. Healthy people, we're happy people. We want to reward people for doing things. We don't want to penalise people for not doing things. But in the long term, we need to rewrite this policy. We need to remove the responsibility out of local decisions. We need a proper government agency that's going to maintain and keep an eye on what's happening, that monitors it, not necessarily to penalise, but at least in the first instance know that people are looking. If I came up to you and said, what I want you to do is one day every two years write down what you eat, and we're going to use that to monitor how healthy you are, but I never rang you up ever again, do you think you're really going to keep a report of what you ate on one day? Not at all. Especially if filling in that report was 20 pages long. And on a topic that you know is divisive amongst your school parent group, and possibly you don't particularly care about either. Because we're adults, and we eat whatever we want, because we were restricted when we were children, and now we get to choose what we eat, 
and that's what we're going to do. So I think the easiest thing is the compliance tech. We can deal with the inequity now with some leadership from higher up. The slightly harder challenge is the nutrient-based criteria. I was kind of minding my own business with respects to canteens over the summer until walking through a supermarket, I stumbled across these products. I thought, what on earth is this? And it just so, co so coincided with a media person contacting me saying, you popped up last year as someone who's angry about canteens. School starts next week. Do, do you think there's anything we can work on? I said, oh, is there what? I said, I've just walked through my local supermarket and I've found at least 15 products, not even looking hard, marketed to parents and or children saying that their product is lunchbox friendly. Great for lunchboxes. The surefire lunchbox snack. But then there's another group that I think takes things a little bit further. These groups here, nine companies, now at 11, because I went through the supermarket on the weekend to buy sample products for the room, and I found two more, that make direct reference to the state or federal canteen guidelines. They have taken their product, they've assessed it by the nutrient-based criteria, they're going, you beauty, we hit amber. Right? We're in. And they've come up with their own logo. Now, what's the first thing you notice? All the logos are different. They're not an authentic regulated body. There is none. They've been made up by themselves, by the companies. And if you don't believe me, I have a screenshot from a page which I think has subsequently been deleted from this company. I'm not going to put it on the audio. Oh, light's bad. To help consumers make easier and more informed choices, insert brand name, has launched a new school canteen logo on favourite kids' products, like the one I just held up. According to the above programs, amber foods like this product can be enjoyed as part of a balanced diet, but they should be selected carefully. Here's the kicker. To earn the new logo that we've made up, insert brand name, has reformulated its product range. So now each 25 gram serve provides less than 600 kilojoules, less than three grams of saturated fat, and more than one gram of fiber. Look out for, insert brand name, featuring the new logo in your supermarket. They've reformulated their product so that the serving size now meets the criteria. This is a serving size. That's it. They haven't made the food healthier. They haven't done anything to make it resemble more like real food. They've just given you a smaller packet. And they put it in a larger bag with a 10-pack. Oh, 10-pack. To me, that's Monday to Friday for two weeks. I get paid fortnightly, so I do my fortnightly shopping. One big bag with 10 packs covers my child for the next two weeks. Let's just point something out. Total amount of added sugars that are in this product, 6.7 grams. How many grams should we be avoiding? Now, what's the threshold for sugar if we want to avoid dental caries? 13. Three teaspoons. Half your entire daily threshold, according to the World Health Organization, in this one small packet. Half. For a child. But I don't think that's necessarily the worst example of how a nutrient-based criteria results in an inadequate system that allows manufacturers to reformulate their product. 
For that one, I save this. Everybody seen this one? No? And this one I'll put on the audio. Kellogg's Liquid Cocoa Pops Breakfast. Because this one deserves to be shown in all its glory. This is reformulation, manufacturing and inadequate nutrient-based criteria at its best. Or, if you're a dietitian and nutritionist, at its worst. I'm going to start with the benign thing that people are like, ah, yeah, that's not important. So I'll get that one out of the way first. This is canteen-approved green food. This is marketed, stamped on the packet as something your child could drink every day. Every day. And you know what? They're not lying. Kellogg's are 100%. This is a green, canteen-approved food using the current state mandated government guidelines. First thing I notice, it's not actually Cocoa Pops. I won't spend too long on this, but here's our liquid Cocoa Pops breakfast, and you can see the ingredients list there. It's reduced fat milk, sugar, vegetable fibre, and a bunch of flavours and minerals and vitamins shown in for good measure. Inulin's not Cocoa Pops. This is Cocoa Pops. The original product, First product, first ingredient, whole white rice, 60%. They've gotten rid of the Cocoa Pops. Just like a chocolate milkshake, only crunchy, is now just like a chocolate milkshake. Not even crunchy. It could even be Nutrigrain. Because if you go and have a look at the nutritional panels, and I've got some products at the back, they're exactly the same ingredient list except for one thing. Cocoa flavour. Remove cocoa flavour and you have Nutrigrain. Add cocoa flavour and you now have cocoa pops. That's not food. I think that's the smallest thing to be concerned about. So if it's not cocoa pops and it's not Nutrigrain, what on earth is it? Reduced fat milk, mostly. And then the second ingredient is sugar. Right? Now we list ingredients on the, on the basis of the amount that we put in. Whatever it is, most first, all down to the smallest. So it's mostly skim milk, then it's sugar, then we use inulin, a fructin extracted from the root of chicory plants. So somebody at the Kellogg's factory has gone out and grown some chicory plants, they've gotten the root, and then they've used a chemical process by which they can extract this fructose-containing fibre, and they've put that into the low-fat milk. Then they've added a bunch of flavours and stabilisers. 460, 466, and 407. Now I don't trust my knowledge to put my memory when I'm in uh, giving a talk, so I've brought out the food additives guides, 400 to 495. Let's just read some of these out. 460, cellulose plant wall, a crystalline or powder form of walls of plant cells. Large concentrations can cause intestinal problems such as bloating, constipation and diarrhoea. Due to this fact, it cannot be used in weaning foods. That's, yeah. All right, I might get a little bit bloated. 466, a boxy methyl cellulose, prepared from cellulose, the main polysaccharide and constituent of wood. Commercially prepared from wood and chemically modified. Known to cause cancer when ingested by test animals. Many different uses, mainly as a thickening agent, but also as a filler, dietary fibre, an anti-clumping agent. Large concentrations can cause intestinal problems such as bloating, constipation and diarrhoea. 407, carrageenan, 
Oh, well, seaweed. Seaweed can't be that bad for us. It's the fibre extracted from seaweed and it's used as a setting agent. It has recently been linked with cancer because it may become contaminated when ethylene oxide is added to an inferior product. Uh, the results in ethylene chlorohydrin forming a highly carcinogenic compound linked to toxic hazards including ulcers and cancer. The most serious concerns relate to degraded carrageenan, which is not a permitted additive. However, native carrageenan, which is used, may become degraded in the gut. Okay, so we've got low-fat milk, sugar, the wooded root of a chicory plant, and a bunch of stabilizers and flavors. And this is green-rated food. It's got a few minerals and vitamins thrown in for good measure. And I've been in discussions with professors of dietetics about this product where they have actually said, yeah, but the kids are getting minerals and vitamins. It's a flavoured milk. And as long as they're getting the minerals and vitamins, you know, a little sugar isn't that bad. A little sugar is not that bad. We'll come back to that in a moment. Okay. So if this is a green food, that means it's the healthier choice compared to something else. That means something must be far worse than this product. The thing that it's better than is plain full cream milk. Plain full cream milk under the current nutrient-based criteria is an orange, amber, choose carefully, occasional food. So children, don't eat plain milk. But here, here is a nice popper of liquid chocolate milk, which is perfectly fine for you to have every day. Now, why is it that plain milk is an orange food, but chocolate liquid cocoa pops is a green food? Because it's made with low-fat milk. That's all. Any dairy product, flavoured or plain, as long as it's made with reduced-fat dairy, is a green food. Here's the criteria for amber full-fat dairy products because they may contribute excess energy. Keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. So I can't, eat, I can't drink plain milk because it has saturated fat in it and excess energy, but I can have the green-approved Cocoa Pops because it's reduced fat milk and therefore a healthier option. Let's compare the pair for 100 mils. Oh, look at that. They're right. Yes, if we look at 100 mils of plain milk, versus 100 mils of the Cocoa Pops breakfast, there's less saturated fat in the Cocoa Pops breakfast. Definitely. Cocoa Pops has 1.3 grams, full cream meat, 3.4 grams. So I am definitely going to get more saturated fat if I'm drinking plain milk dairy. What about the energy content though? Hang on. Hang on. Full fat dairy products are supposed to have excess energy. But 100 mils of plain, full cream milk has less energy than 100 mils of my green-approved cocoa liquid pulverous. If we play around with numbers, and I'll be wary because there's an economist in the room that I'm aware of, 36 out of 264, I'm going to say that, I'm going to call that what, around about one-eighth, 12.5%. What about sodium content? The other criteria we're supposed to look at. Oh, hang on. Liquid cocoa pots breakfast has 30% more sodium than plain full cream milk. So, so far on our nutrient-based criteria, we've completely failed. Because even on the ones we're supposed to look at, we're ignoring them. We're ignoring them simply because we lose out, we save on 
a total of around about 1.3 grams of saturated fat. To save on 1.3 grams of saturated fat, we've added a whack of sugar. Double the amount of sugar in our green liquid cocoa pulse breakfast than you would in plain milk. And a key point here is the extra sugar is all added. It's not lactose, it's not dairy sugar. It's all added sugar. It's the stuff we're supposed to be avoiding because it's linked to weight gain maybe, but definitely dairy, um, definitely dental caries. Does anybody know why we don't look at sugar as a criteria in New South Wales? You won't find out too easily. There used to be a very helpful page called the New South Wales Department of Health Frequently Asked Questions, but it got removed six weeks ago. Fortunately, I took a screenshot and downloaded it last year. The occasional food criteria does not include a total sugar criteria. To keep the criteria as simple as possible and to ensure that foods containing naturally occurring sugars such as dairy products and fruit were not disadvantaged. At the moment, I'm thinking of dairy products feeling a little bit disadvantaged. No specific sugar criteria has been included. However, by setting a limit on the total kilojoule content of the product, the amount of sugar that can be added is limited. Well, hang on. There's more sugar in the product with more energy that's a green-approved food. That page has since been deleted, which is really annoying because I referenced it in an article, and now when people follow the article and go to reference, it's not there anymore. But even by that reasoning, they're wrong. So we've got a nutrient-based criteria, which is broken. It was broken from bad, in, uh, bad intelligence in the first place. And what we do is we are demonising a plain milk product. Now, I'm not going to go on a rant that starts saying saturated fat is good and healthy for you, you should be getting rid of it, and that's what the problem is. But I'll tell you what I will say. When we remove fat from a product to make it reduce fat, you remove a few other things as well. Fat, vitamin, sol fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E and K, which we don't re-fortify back into our products in this country. Which means drinking low-fat products could result in a deficiency in really essential fat-soluble vitamins. I'll tell you something else that's happened in the last six months. Two big epidemiological studies, both from Scandinavia and another one that came out last week, looking at saturated fat in full-fat dairy versus low-fat dairy. Men drinking full-fat dairy, leaner and lower cardiovascular disease risk than men drinking low-fat milk. Last week, the saturated fat, magaric acid, oh, it's not saturated fat, the fat, the unsaturated fat, magaric acid, which gets removed in making low-fat milk, or a portion of it does, protective against diabetes. So we've removed product. We take a base product. We go to Daisy, we get some milk. I go down to my factory and I say, remove some fat, add some wood, some potentially carcinogenic stabilizers, and some sugar. I go, thanks, geez, I'm glad I got rid of that fat because that's an orange food and this is now green. Kids, drink away from it. A nutrient-based criteria that favours any highly processed food over the original whole food-based product is broken, especially as we can see when we endorse sugar. But I want to think, let's just raise something. Let's just think, what if we won the battle today 
and tomorrow New South Wales Health rang me up and said, OK, Kieran, stop talking to people. We've put in a, a, a threshold for sugar, such as the Healthy Star rating system. Sure, some of you would have heard about it. It's that website that appeared for a couple of hours and then got torn down. It includes an added sugar parameter. Choice magazine published a whole heap of foods last week that they'd rated from school lunchboxes. So I contacted them. I said, please, can you tell me if you rated the Kellogg's Liquid Cocoa Pops breakfast, what would be the star rating? And we did it through Twitter. So there's a good accurate record of the conversation that anyone can go and have a look at. Kellogg's Liquid Cocoa Pop Breakfast, under the star rating system that includes added sugar as a criteria, two stars. What's full cream, plain dairy milk? Four. Right, so healthy star rating system that will be released at some point will be telling parents and children Liquid Cocoa Pop Breakfast is two stars, plain full cream dairy milk is four. Ooh, I'll go buy my full cream dairy milk. But then I'll go to school and my helpful principal and canteen manager will be like, full cream dairy milk, choose carefully. Liquid Cocoa Pops breakfast every day. So right there, we have another contradiction. An immediate need to include sugar at our criteria. Because either the healthy star rating system and the people who have included sugar are wrong, or we've had it right all along with the canteen guidelines. And I'm not convinced by the New South Wales Frequently Asked Questions that we had it right in the canteen guidelines. Let's just have a look at one more thing here. How does this product stack up against our WHO guidelines? Okay, let's forget about 100 mils. So you look at it and go, oh, it's only like five extra grams of sugar. Well, no, it comes in a 250 mil serve. So I'm not aware of any child who'd get a 250 mil popper, drink 100 mils of it and throw it away. Right? So you'll drink the entire 250 mils, which means he or she has just gotten 24 and a half grams of sugar around about half of which is lactose, natural sugar. So who wouldn't worry about that? But who would worry about the 10.7 grams of added sugar? 2.5 teaspoons. If your child is having this for breakfast, they've got half a gram of sugar that they can have for the rest of the entire day. Otherwise, every gram after that is increasing their risk at weight gain, dental caries, and I'm going to throw in type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's and dementia growing up there, cardiovascular disease risk, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And I don't mind saying that because I'm more than happy to have those debates at another point with the science. But indulge me for just one more time on this product. What else does this product teach our children? It teaches them that a sweet, preferable, a sweetened food is more preferable to its plain base product. And we know sweet preference is highly dangerous. Overconsumption is driven by three major factors. One of my good colleagues in nutrition and dietetics told me this, and only just the other day. Taste, convenience, and cost. Taste will be a major driver of overconsumption here. And this product here says to our children, you can have a sweetened flavoured milk more often and better than a plain milk. But the other thing is, and I'm going to step outside of this, so a little bit more philosophically, it's telling our children you don't have to chew food. It's telling them that here, you, let's fit into your busy lifestyle. No need to sit down and have breakfast anymore. Up, out of bed, into your uniform and off we go. You can have breakfast in the car as we go. No chewing required. Potentially because their teeth have rotted away from all the sugar that they're eating. But still, 
highly inappropriate. If we're teaching children about food, we cannot be encouraging this type of product. And at the moment, this product is a green stamped food in New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland and Western Australia. Even knowing they've told us they now include sugar as a nutrient criteria and they won't tell me what that criteria is because it's copyrighted, I said, all right, well, just tell me, is, is Cocoa Pops green, orange or red in Western Australia? Oh, yeah, we had a lot of debate over that one. It's green. Because the sugar criteria is not used for dairy products. It will be used for sweet muffins and cakes and biscuits. It won't be used for savoury products made from scratch. It will be used for... They have around about 50 different criteria at which point they say sugar may or may not be included. So even in the one state that's taken a small step forward to include sugar, they still rate this food as green. What the manufacturers highlighted to me when they brought out all their fate logos is the other big issue with our nutrient-based criteria. I want to highlight something. All of these labels, apart from Cocoa Pops, are amber. They're occasional foods. Which means they're select carefully. If we looked at the Australian Dietary Guidelines, they're discretionary foods. And we're not supposed to get any more than 10% of our daily energy from any of these products. But you can buy them every day in the supermarket to put in your child's lunchbox. And your canteen manager can sell them every day. Hang on. The problem isn't necessarily just with the reformulation. It's availability. They're advisory. Look at this. Fill the menu with these products. Select carefully or occasionally. No. No, 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 no. What we've got here now is that an amber food is being put on a counter in front of a five-year-old, a food that's been formulated to appeal to that child on taste and texture and marketing. And then we put it next to an apple and we say, which one are you going to buy? Which one? God, you can make that choice. A five-year-old, a six-year-old, even a 12-year-old. One of the most consistent things canteen managers and parents have told me and principals in all the conversations I've had over the last year is healthy food doesn't sell. And my canteen needs to make a profit because the canteen manager has to give the school a rent or if it's a PNC-run canteen, they're trying to make a fundraising event. Healthy food doesn't sell. Of course it won't. It's up against highly sweetened, formulated products. So we can't just have advisory availability. We need to change this. We need to get restrictive. We need to accept that the processed discretionary foods that are walking around with orange and red, they're all red. We need to ditch nutrient-based criteria and go, we are assessing foods on where they've come from and where they fit into our diet as a nutrient source. We need to eat to live, not live to eat, which is a phrase that people bring out from time to time. So I think one of the big issues is as long as we're assessing foods on nutrient criteria, we're open to inadequacies because we don't know all the criteria that we're using. As a result, we've got 
a whole range of foods that are being allowed to be sold every day as pseudo-green products despite being amber-rated. And now we've got foods that outcompete against whole, fresh, real, whichever word you'd like to use, foods within our canteen. We need a band-aid now. The immediate fix is to include sugar as a criteria. You would see things like the green rate of Cocoa Pops breakfast drop down immediately to a red. Personally, I would rate it as a sugar-sweetened beverage. The dental surgeon, Rob, that gave me those lovely pictures earlier on, it's not just sugar-sweetened beverages, it's not just the acidity of drinks that cause rotted teeth, it is the sugar. And sugary milk will have that same effect as a sugar-sweetened beverage, which means, in my opinion, something like the liquid Cocoa Pops breakfast is a sugar-sweetened beverage that would be under the ban. A quick plug for those of you who may have, seen, may have seen some of this, but Sarah Wilson, the I Quit Sugar program, have given some support to this notion. And we currently have a draft letter that will be available until Friday that we are sending to every state health minister and education minister, as well as opposition leader and federal health minister and education minister and opposition leader to call for an immediate review of the canteen guidelines. If you're convinced by anything I've said tonight about sugar, I urge you to go to the iQuitSugar.com website, find this blog post, and there is a link to the draft letter, and you just need to sign your name to it. And on Friday, that letter will be sent off with myself and Sarah as the signatures on it. We're going old school on the old schools. Okay. The third and final movement. These guys really annoyed me in summer, and so, I thought about something else, and this is what I think is the hardest thing for us to change. It's the hardest thing to change because it's going to result on us changing as individuals. We can't rely on government. Why can't we rely on government? As our Prime Minister said when he was Health Minister, the only person responsible for what goes into my mouth is me. And the only person who are responsible for what goes into kids' mouths are the parents. So governments wash their hands of it. Interestingly, the next line in that quote is what we really need is more responsible dietary behaviours from parents, from individuals and school canteens. 2006 he said that as the Federal Health Minister and I doubt his opinion would have changed too much. So as far as government's concerned, the reason why our children are fat and sick is because we're feeding them bad food. Not because the government has done absolutely nothing to enforce the guidelines that have been brought in to tell us what healthy eating is doing. We can't rely on academia to help us out. Academia is slow. I wrote a letter to the Medical Journal of Australia last July, 300 words, it's about that big. It came out in February and that was just saying we need to update the guidelines because we've got new national guidelines and the guidelines of the state aren't. So it took nine months just for that to get reviewed. An email I've got from a nameless professor of dietetics. Hi, Kieran. I'm glad to see that you're being active on this front, getting angry at the industry. Don't forget that once upon a time, home-baked cakes and biscuits were always a part of school and work lunchboxes. These days, the food industry bakes them instead. The food industry has taken over the role that mums had 50 years ago. We don't need to see them as evil, but simply responding to market cues. A professor of dietetics telling us that the food that we sell to our children should be governed by market cue? 
not by their role in our nutrient requirements. We can't rely on academia. So we can only rely on the individual to come through. But it's difficult. Here's just a sample of other products marketed at parents as lunchbox friendly, which seems to associate more with the size and shape of the product than any nutrient criteria in that it fits in your lunchbox. Snack pack, dear starving kids. Oh, lucky for snack pack. Saving starving kids with a dairy product that doesn't require refrigeration. Straight away, I'm scared of that. Right? LCM's The Surefire Lunchbox hit 37 ingredients. Sugar's listed six times. Lunchbox heroes, just like mum used to make. Perhaps the professor has an idea. Industry's just replaced my mum. And then, just to show that I'm not completely biased, I found one glimmer of hope in the fresh fruit and vegetables, those pesky apple farmers who want to market directly to kids. Great and ideal for lunchboxes. A reformulated, unregulated guideline allows us as parents to get targeted. And what's happening is, because we only govern the foods in the canteen, there's a completely inconsistent message. The manufacturer has found a way around the guidelines. Even if we win the battle and get guidelines that recess processed foods out, real food in, it's only the foods for sale in school. What you buy in the supermarket can still be put in a lunchbox and still be taken to school. Many school classrooms still use food as a reward. We use food to train circus animals and pets, not as educational tools. One of these is the real dog biscuit, and the other is for children, apparently. I wouldn't feed either to either. I've seen my dog eat schmackos, and it's completely insane. What we need to think of the way forward is to ditch just the canteen under regulation. But we also need to think about whether in the long term we do a whole school of approach and target lunch boxes and school fundraising events and in-class rewards. So my third movement, the immediate fix would be we need to restrict what the manufacturers can do with a government policy designed for health. Those logos should be illegal, but they're not. A company should not be able to reformulate their food to fit a criteria so that then they can sell it. A guideline that's put in place to protect health should not be used to abuse it. Long term, though, is to come up with a whole food approach, ditch the nutrient-based criteria and bring in only green food for availability to the schools. And because I just saw the time, I'll stop there and leave my concluding statements up there that you can read while you have questions if there are any. Thank you. I think clapping like that is a standing ovation. <laughs> so, wow, Kieran makes it sound simple, but Joe gives us a bit of a reality check, <laughs> actually what it's like to run a canteen. We've got a short time for questions, um, if anyone would like to ask questions. Uh, before we get to the healthy, non-added sugar food and drink. <laughs> 
Uh, hi, Karen. Rory Robertson. Um, thanks for a great talk. Um, as you know, I agree with you that uh, added sugar in modern doses is a, a major driver of global obesity and global diabetes. I was amused you spent so much time on uh, in your presentation demonising uh, your um, liquid cocoa pops. And in the process, you failed to mention that it's super low GI equals 35. So on the University of Sydney's famous glycemic index measure, it also is a green go food. Um, you eat as much as you want. And in fact, the University of Sydney, the Charles Perkins Centre's most famous nutrition scientist, uh, says that uh, in her three million uh, diet books sold, that there is, there is absolute consensus that sugar and food does not cause diabetes. So my question is, how did so much clownish science across the world get sugar so wrong? Thanks. Uh, thank you very much, Rory. Nice to meet you. Um, look, it's a, I, for anyone in the university, we, we're well versed on where you come from. Um, look, I guess let's, let's target a few of the core issues in your question. Uh, would cocoa pops be still rated great on the basis of GI? I think there are methodological issues with the GI, so I don't think it should be used as a measure for health food rating. Um, how did the world get it so wrong on sugar? Um, well, they're focused on fat. There's a nice logic to fat makes you fat. There's not so much of a logic to sugar makes you fat. But if you look at the biochemistry, there's very strong pathways that sugar gets converted to fat in excess. And so I think we had very early on, 40 or 50 years ago, a very narrow perspective of what makes people fat, it must be fat. And they ignored the biochemistry and the evidence that there's also a role for carbohydrates in synthesizing fat within the body. Uh, thank you for your passion, Kieran. Um, if I can a few questions, I, mean, I noticed in the, looking through the product list of uh, the goodies we're going to consume hopefully soon, um, you've got a lot of whole food sweeteners in terms of fruits, dates and things like that. Um, what's the uh, research on, uh, you've kind of alluded to already, on refined sugars as opposed to whole sugars? I know there's been recent research, for example, that crushed sugar cane juice, which has become very popular in markets, is actually quite good for you. It is actually relatively low GI compared to and we've got the alternative sweeteners like stevia, which, um, I mean, obviously Spartmay has been discredited uh, <laughs> and things like that. So I just wondering what the research was. And just as an idea about what could be done, uh, how about the idea of like an electronic um, uh, credit card uh, equivalent, a food credit card where the kids could use and uh, they could keep track of their calorie intake while they're at school at least. Um, so they can, they've got a limit and they can hopefully then manage their own they know what their limits are and they, they know what they can get and then hopefully they can possibly manage with the right uh, education, of course, uh, to make the right food choices so they make the choices themselves. Sure, okay, um, a couple of issues there as well. Uh, I'm gonna take a, a slight cop out on the sweetness question um, and say, hey look, keep an ear out because uh, my wonderful collaborator, Professor Bob Burks, and I got a half a million dollar ARC grant last year for the next three years to investigate the role of sweetness and preferences and overconsumption in humans. Um, and so there will be some information coming out there. And for a good discussion on the research behind that, I think maybe we will have a chat uh, while we have something to eat. Um, but yeah, my, my, my own personal philosophy is I think one should move away from sweetness. Um, I think the sweetness there is a, is a driver uh, for overconsumption. And when you 
go to eating whole foods such as what's here and you move away from the refined sugars as your sweetener, you find that foods that you typically found bland are actually quite rich and wholesome in their flavourings. And so at the moment, to answer that question, if you have not lived without the added sugar interrupting your taste preferences, it's difficult to say whether or not where's the role for whole sugar versus a refined sugar in that sweetness. We got uh, My Wholesome Kitchen on board here because we wanted to at least make sure that if we're picking on added sugar, we are using whole fruit, whole versions, uh, whole food versions for the, that sweetness. But I'm not necessarily still saying that that's perfectly fine if we were to get into my own personal philosophy. Um, the, I, I, sorry, I forgot the, uh, oh, so the calorie counter. Look, and again, if I'm gonna get a little bit controversial here, I don't believe calorie counting is the key. I, I would not want my child going to school counting the calories of everything he ate. You, and then thinking that the way that he could compensate that would be to run around the block. You can't outrun a bad diet. And the research is quite solid showing that diet is a far more predictor, far, far stronger predictor of health than the amount of work that you do and the amount of exercise. So if we were to then make our children obsessed with counting calories, I think we'd find things being more harmful than they actually are at the moment. 50 years ago, the accent was on heart disease, and, and now cancer's catching up to that, and things all change in research. And, and years ago, look, we all know that it's what you eat, and if you have a lot of sugar, it turns to fat if you don't burn it off, and that's really the main point. And it's not really the exercise, it really is what you put in your mouth. And I mean, I'm 69 and not, not obese, but um, you do need to be active and not, and not lazy. But you do have to stay on whole food and get away from the sugar because all the little children I see eating these uh, little round lollies on a stick, what are they called, chubba? Their the mothers are handing them out just to keep the children quiet. So it, it all goes back to discipline and everything. And your children don't need to have food to be quiet. I was just wondering if there's been any research done in terms of countries overseas that might have done this better and have better policies or better programs running in their canteens. It's an excellent question and I have to unfortunately admit that my knowledge of what is happening overseas is very poor with respect to schools. Um, I've been very much focused on just what's happening in our own backyard for this year. But it's definitely an idea of having a look at whether or not we can learn from other countries that are doing better. And people often talk about the French system as being one that's definitely well worth looking into and seeing what we can learn from it. Um, but, uh, and people also say that the American system is one that we want to avoid, where you have fast food chains sponsoring canteens and schools. But to the extent of what we know from overseas, uh, yeah, I can't. Do we have an example of a canteen that has only um, healthy food, uh, sugar, Add, sugar, uh, food free of added sugar and not high in fat. Do we have an example of a canteen like that and was it successful? Did children buy food there? There's plenty of examples of canteens who meet the, the policy. Um, we walk the talk, we've been running canteens um, uh, and have been confronted by all of the challenges that come from, from trying to provide um, uh, healthy, nutritious food in line with what the guideline says um, in schools in Western Sydney. 
um, uh, and currently run one school, a kindy to year 12. That um, canteen has volunteers and paid staff and we um, have limited prepackaged food um, and, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge to, to provide foods that um, the girls, it's a girls' school, um, will eat. Um, it, it's not devoid of sugar though, um, but everything is within um, the portion sizes that you would want uh, and, and uh, but the choice is theirs. If they choose to buy something that is what we call discretionary or the, the, that's not from, that is a snack, um, the nature of the snack they choose to buy, they do have a choice of healthy snacks, but they've got their personal choice within it. And, and realistically, some of the snacks that fall into the amber, amber category um, is what they will because they may be um, slightly higher in fat and salt and or sugar. Um, that similar um, thing that Tony Abbott was talking about, let's not educate the children, let's give a six or seven year old the choice over their eating habits by supplying the food and saying, are you going to have that apple or are you going to have this sweetened snack? Um, the gentleman over there was talking about giving kids a calorie counter. Um, but if you don't educate, I mean, calorie counters are hard for adults. If you give a kid a calorie counter, I mean, it's just saying, we're not going to educate you. It's up to you. When you turn out to be an obese adult, we're going to complain about our health budget and slash health budget when we could save the health budget by fixing the problem now so that those kids don't become a burden on the health budget. The, the and I think my, 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 my comment is that um, level, levels of food literacy are very low and that unless we use and educate consumers, whether they're parents, adults or children, about food and portions um, without demonising any element of it, they can't make good choice. But in the school canteen, it's about the mix of food you have. And equally, like any business, it's how you market it. But many of our schools don't have those skills. They're, they're staffed and, you know, they're not franchised businesses. They're staffed by parents and those with, with the time to volunteer and for by casual canteen managers and canteen assistants. So, the complexity of just saying we should do it this way, it's about how do we implement that way and how do we provide the necessary steps to, to make small steps. And it is about small steps. Um, we do surveys in schools. We've recently done some in primary schools to work out what's the demand for the canteen. And overwhelmingly, the majority of parents only use the canteen once or occasionally per week. And therefore, many of the parents make the comment that says, well, if I want my child to have a pie once a week, I want to have it. Our comment back to that is, is well, that's fine, but only have pies on Friday. So you're, you've then got your balance and a low-fat, well-quality pie for those. Because there's nothing wrong with a pie. We all love a pie, for heaven's sake. But it's about the nature of that pie and where it is within the rest of the diet that, that, that the children are consuming. 
So if I can just talk to that. So where, where I see the part of the problem there is that we will teach students nutrition theory in classroom and then they come out to class into a lab playground and all of that learning goes out the window because they've got that choice within the canteen and we don't have a consistency in message. And we know in education, it's practice, it's experience. It, you can lecture to someone for hours theory and they will never get it, but you can give them a prac class or a tutorial and they've got it straight away, which means the power of the playground is far more than what it is in the classroom. So what we need to really do, if we were to summarise this in a few words, it's a whole school of approach where we have school class rewards, we have lunches, we have lunch boxes, we have canteens all under the same guise. But the other issue is we get rid of the processed food. The, you can give your child a pie, you can give them a sausage roll, but you give it to them on the way home as their after school snack. We're talking about the role that our school and government should be playing in teaching our children now what is healthy eating. And we've got them for six hours in the middle of the day, five days a week. We, if we get them realising that while they're in school, it's healthy food, it's green foods only, and they can have the discretionary foods but only outside, they start catching on. Oh, I'm not allowed to have this food six hours a day because it's not healthy. Oh, I can have this food outside of class because I can only have it in a short window of time. Whereas if we make it available all day long, that message doesn't get through. Thank you. I would like to thank very much our speakers. Um, they will be here for a while where you can actually um, talk to them further. But you can see that even though it kind of seems simple, get rid of sugar, actually we've still got debate going on even amongst our speakers who are actually in sync. <laughs> and as Joe said at one point, how can we, the ordinary public, know what's going on when there's so much debate in this area? The research is constantly coming out and changing the landscape. Um, the fad diets, I think probably one of the messages they're saying is stay away from fad diets. But thank you both very much for a very uh, provocative e evening, but actually thought-provoking. It's given us a lot of, I keep wanting to say food for thought, but I'm trying not to say that. But it has given us a lot to think about over the evening. So thank you. And then I have to make one announcement, but I would like to thank sincerely our guest speaker, Joe Gardner, and our emerging amazing researcher, Dr. Kieran Rooney. So thank you. <laughs>